We're live, guys. We're live. We're live. Welcome to our latest podcast. This week, we take a step back away from the events, the weird events of the last three months. We're joined by Maxine Gooding, or Max, as she likes to be known. The three of us, what we have in common is that we've all celebrated significant birthdays recently. And it's been an opportunity to take a step right back and reflect on some of life's lessons which we'd like to share, which of course are relevant to anybody, not just those who've blown out candles recently. You'll notice this podcast's a little longer. The three of us talking fills more space. Who knew? Um, I attempt, as you'll hear, to bring the podcast into a tidy end after about 30 minutes and Michael and Max were having none of it. So a bit like the bonus feature you'll get if you stay in your seat throughout the credits of a Marvel film, the extra 10 minutes might be worth a listen. In fact, they probably might pose more questions than they answer. <laughs> so welcome back to the Noggin podcast. I think this is our third one. Um, I'm joined by Michael. Hi. See, that was less of a gap this time, mate. Well done. Yeah, I've got my timing this week. For the benefit of the listener, we're joined by our friend and associate and colleague, Max, who is somebody we've known for sort of 10 years, Max, would it be, yeah. probably? Um, so I'll let you introduce yourself, Max. So um, how come you've um, been cajoled to join us oh, today? Probably because I have this crazy way of working that says I just say yes to stuff before thinking it through and we've all worked together for a while and it made me think this would be quite a fun conversation to have so I'm curious as to how much is going to come out of this how much giggles laughs and then that magic moment we go Ooh. there you go Michael so no pressure <laughs> oh is that on me <laughs> I did I was sharing that with you I was sharing that with you so Max is we were trying to just dis- describe the intention behind this podcast on the back basis that, you know, I know that you've had a significant birthday recently, Max. According to you, it's significant, yeah. Oh, yeah, probably, because it was the similar one to myself. So I did say to a client the other day that, you know, she said, oh, is it a significant birthday? And I said, yeah, I, I've turned 40. And she just looked at me really embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he looks 50, but he's definitely not 40. And she did actually pass up to that. So we've both turned for 50. And Michael, for the benefit of the listener, has uh, finally turned 40. So there was a period of three weeks where we were both in our 40s, which I think I texted you on a fairly daily basis, uh, but, you know, (laughs) didn't really last for that long. So I wondered if it might be worth thinking about or talking about when you get to a stage in life where you reflect a little bit. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing and 2020 vision. It's very rarely rarely that. so I was watching a TED talk this week by a guy called Robert Waldinger, and it was from 2015. And you may have watched it, and it doesn't matter if you haven't, but the talk is about what makes a happy life. And as part of this, he talks about this famous study of um, 724 Americans that was started some 75 years ago, it's probably 80 years ago. It's had four study directors over the years and they have studied these people since they were 19 years old and there's 60 odd people still alive in their 90s and one of the things he talks about is um aged 50 Mm -hmm. he asks 
in the studies that they do with them, he said, what is it that exists for these people aged 50 that predicts the longest and healthiest life? And I thought, you know, if we can nail that at 50, Michael, it might give you a good chance for 10 years to, to catch up, really. You're giving me a run-off. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing it yet, but you've got 10 years to, to, to make sure you are. So I thought we might talk about that. Sounds good. That also sounds good at the moment, and I'm just checking. The massive blue bottle that's in this room that's trying to get out. <laughs> Can you hear it, or am I okay? Get out, because if, if your room's with your window shut, is nearly as hot as mine. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. I'm glad this is audio. So, so if you if you can bear with, I'll just literally open patio doors, get the fly out, and then shut it. So, Michael, you're you're the man with the questions normally. So, what would you do to? Um, in, you know, I know that obviously you you've turned forty, and that was a um, you know wailing, gnashing of teeth, big moment for you. But in, I suppose the obviously Max and I are far more experienced. Ten years makes a massive difference. Not. So what would you what would you what would you ask myself and Max at that stage? Based on what you said about that study, I'm wondering what it is about when you get to middle adulthood, if that's what we could call it, in which you know we're all part. What is it that is really important about that? And based on that study, or or just based on what you know from your own life, because what one of the things that I've been thinking about is that tension between stagnation and generativity, you know, that thing that Eric Erickson talks about in the stages of development. And I wonder about that. And I wonder if that came up in the study or not. And then the other thing that springs to mind is like meaning. How do we make meaning throughout our lives, not just when we meet a certain threshold of age? Because meaning would be important to me, uh, being able to sustain a sense of meaning about what my life's about. Or what my life's for, if that makes sense. And the study that you quoted, or the, the guy that you quoted, that I uh, forgive me, I don't, I haven't heard of um, the stagnation quote. Say that again. There's a famous psychologist um, called Eric Erickson, and he described a number of stages in in one's life that you move through, and those stages being characterised by the polarities of two things. And when you get to middle adult middle adulthood, from like late 20s to six you know sometime around your 60s he described the the two polarities where there's tension which is the tension between stagnation and generativity and what i what i take from that is you know that that feeling of being a bit stuck versus okay. that feeling of being able to create and give back and mm. do something worthwhile not just for yourself but but beyond yourself okay so we promised, Max, we promised something fun. We've gone deep quite quickly. Yeah. So, Max, the question for you is stagnation, tell me. A light question. That tension that you described, Michael, that, that is you know, typically provocative of you to, to mention that because it's a way of, yeah, if you, if you can explore those two extremes, I suppose you know where you sit between them. I don't think there's any suggestion of any sort of sense of permanency at either end of the polarity. It's like, you know, maybe in one moment I'm feeling this and then in another it's a bit like this and it's all okay. I'm just wondering what sense you make given, given this, you know, the significance and in inverted commas of your birthday. What sense do you make about that 
tension. I like what you're saying about it being a polarity. And in my head, it's when I'm seeing polarity, I'm seeing that figure of eight on a side. So I'm yeah, so I'm seeing the 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 the, the um, stagnation on one side and the and the generativity on the on the, the other side and that realization that if you spend too much time trying to reinvent yourself then you don't get to a level of, of competence or confidence or authority around something. But if you spend too tar- too long sort of stagnating, then obviously you get bored, you get demotivated, that sort of thing. So mm. when you talk about the tension, it feels more like a balancing tension, you know, thing, which is that you need a bit of stagnation in order to then want to then go, okay, time to move on. But I also know in, in the work that I do with my um my work it, and, and certainly with my, my business partner is that that sort of sense that if I if I if I get too creative then we never nail anything down <laughs> yeah and I, I never learn how to do something well yeah I, th- I think I get I get what you're saying with the that you know the, the figure of eight on its side and how you, you come in and out of that I suppose for me it makes me think of the generative generativity is I suppose in what context because then if you think about what keeps you on track and then if I think back to you know significant birthdays 20s 30s 40s and now 50s it's for for me it's a more of a sense of aliveness so are you um, in the generativity that you're not sort of constantly seeking something that you are generating new ways of getting stuff that's important to you but here in the moment, because I think there's a book that um, Michael and I both read when we worked together years ago, about 20 years ago, by Mike Mikhail Chief sent me high, if I've probably pronounced that really badly, a book called Flow. Mr. Flow, yeah. Go with that. And he, his quote in that was, you know, if, if, if you make your life rewarding enough in the present, you stop yourself, you stop yourself from holding yourself hostage to a hypothetical future and I think in that sort of polarity between the stagnation and the generativity for me it's about being more alive by being more you know it sounds really trite but to say to be more present that to be more I suppose just self-accepting so saying like this is what I like this is what I I, um rather than attempting to constantly change in relation to either other people or what I think I you know I'm comparing myself to I think if I were to say between sort of 40 and 50 I'm really happy the fact I've established more solidity in what I want to do and how I like to go about things and what's important to me and sticking to that for me is is you know there's no it's not really stagnation it's like you but you've I'm, I'm operating within some for what for me are acceptable um guidelines if you like about what you know what sort of life i'm enjoying because you know you get to 50 and you think oh well you know how um how, how far through life are you but then that's again you're holding yourself hostage to but it's about for me it's about making sure you do enough of what what's what um feeds you in in every day it's weird isn't it because i i'm even thinking about even when you were talking about significant birthdays, I was laughing, thinking, I'm not sure that I've I've ever sort of accepted that concept of significant birthdays. <laughs> um, I, those sorts of markers and that idea of stagnation and generativity mm. in my head is, is more about 
exactly am I comfortable in who I am it doesn't matter where I am in from a physical location or who I'm with but am I comfortable with that cycle inside me because I want to constantly be growing so then we, we shift to another book the you know the Carol Dweck the growth mindset the the that sense that people that I read about and I tap into that are living long lives are living long lives because they're constantly learning and they're constantly open to new things and they're constantly reinventing and I don't mean that in the sense of it's exhausting to to never feel like you've come to a place where you feel comfortable who you are I feel comfortable that that's that that who I am is evolving I remember my I know you've heard me talk about Ethel before my old next door neighbor when I lived in my previous house who were died at 97 but at 93 she took her her friend who was 83 on a, her first aeroplane flight because her friend had never flown before and then at 95 I took her out for her first pizza and she came home and started making pizza because to her everything was like oh I've never done that before oh great let's give it a whirl and I was like wow to be like that at 97 I want to be like that that's not stagnation no. is it? I think what you said about being being happy who you are the Louis Theroux podcast recently have been brilliant the one called Grounded because he's used the opportunity to interview people that he's always wanted to speak to one of whom recently was Helena Bonham Carter the actress who's been acting for I think she said something like 30 years because she's um, I think she was in her first big film at 19 and it was really fascinating and she came out with a, a quote that's really stuck with me that she's now become she he said well look you know at your stage in life it's making her sound ancient and she's not um louis through asked her you know at your stage in life you know wh- where where are you at what 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 have you learned and she said well you think you get to a point where you just become you become more comfortable inhabiting yourself and i really like that as a concept of are you happy inhabiting yourself because you are who you are and what 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 that means from a day-to-day enjoyment of life i think it's yeah it's a it's a worthy it's a worthy intention i mean i think the age thing for me feels like a um, what's the right word um so when we were introducing at the beginning of this call and we were talking about you michael being apparently 10 years younger and yet in my head you are at least a few years older than me and I don't mean the way that you do you do not look older than me let's be clear but you are somebody that's so you have that level of of groundedness and that that wise head and that sort of way about you that I you know I can I can have my moments and I've joked about it I like I want to put you know put my Michael head on you know like be a little bit more a bit more like you um so I don't see that inhabiting thing as necessarily age related I do see it as a stage though Ben I see what you know there is a moment in people's lives depending on what they go through where they may choose to inhabit themselves sooner or later depending on what they go through I think so how old do you think I am <laughs> younger younger 23 <laughs> mentally you know <laughs> but there is something as well about the um no, because I've got white hair now. There is something about the white-haired woman um, thing which is hilarious, particularly through this sort of COVID experience, where if I get asked to do something by a man who's younger than me and he can see that he's younger than me and I say no, 
they don't disagree with me. <laughs> it's like, oh, middle-aged woman, power. <laughs> power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is something about that. I don't know what it is. It's funny, though, isn't it? How, what you said there about people holding different places in our mind and, 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 that, and that have nothing to do with age. I find that quite interesting sort of to visualise the, the, the positioning of people like a constellation around ourselves and where they sit and, the, and, and what they symbolise. That's sparked a sort of level of creativity in my mind because age is, is a construct, isn't it? It's just something that we've developed together. Um, but that's not to say that it needs to hold any more meaning than just whatever time means. Like you say, Ben, about about the, about hypothetical futures and being held hostage to hypothetical futures. You know, that's driven by time, isn't it? And and maybe if we step out of time, going a bit cosmic. Wow, now we're getting really uh, esoteric. Like candles and meditate. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but back to your question about. The Robert Waldinger TED Talk and his his study, aged fifty, and this is what attracted my attention because I'm biased towards um, this aspect of life anyway. And you used to talk about age, and it doesn't really matter what age somebody is; it's more about the contact. I think that you know what you get from them, and and as Max kindly sort of talked about you, Michael, and the wisdom that she gets from you, regardless of you know age. It's it's not it's not relevant. It's more about what she gets from that relationship she has with you when we're working together. So in the study, when they studied people aged 50 as a predictor, he said, you know, it's not their cholesterol levels for a happy and long life. It's the amount, it's the extent to which they have satisfied, satisfying relationships with people. So the study showed conclusively that those who are the most satisfied in the relationships that they have, not just with one significant other, but with their social circle, they are by far and away the healthiest at 80. And that really stuck, um, struck me because you know, he talked about, he, the, the study talks about the amount of social contact being a driver for people's happiness, the quality of the social contact the sort of depth or the quality of those relationships and and how those relationships protect you know our brains and our physiology people in supportive relationships their memory their memory stays sharper as they get older and i'm just really curious about how you know age and life and comparison and in relation to other people i he has this lovely expression that you know tending to family and friends and i think for for me personally that's you know a massive driver and i hadn't really put it in the context of the health giving or longevity giving nature of that and i wonder as a social animal or social creature if that's something that i know we're biased towards that anyway with the work that we do and how just rubbing along well with people is one thing and having emotional competence and having you know self-esteem and you know as you say michael about how we perceive ourselves in relation to other people but to have that as a study for longevity is a different you know it takes it to a slightly different level for me 
I'm trying to remember whether it's in the Village Effect, Ben, the Susan Pink book, okay. or it's another book, um, but the similar one around the sort of studies of longevity, and the um, I think it's I I'm going to say it's Italian or uh, the villages where and they're, they're trying to work out yeah exactly that is it the food is it this is it that and actually it was more about the nurturing relationships with family the fact that the young people were spending time with the old people just chatting every day making bread doing stuff and it says that it takes a, I think one of the chapters in that book is it takes it takes a village to raise a septuagenarian yes. If you cross that over with a study that I looked at last week around the impacts of COVID and the fact that the isolation and the lack of contact that we're having through this pandemic is the thing that's having the most negative impact on us than anything else. And and the lack of, strangely, and I think there's something about the physical contact. We know that through the work that we've all done together, that the neuro... The neurons are all firing when you're near people. But when you're near people, you can make proper eye contact, not just Zoom contact, but eye contact and physical contact. But those relationships and that connectivity with those people is so important and it is life-giving. And we've been joking about it in the house, but um, the, the idea that you need to hold a hug for 10 seconds before you get enough of the physical kick from the hug. Yeah. Um, the oxytocin. Yeah, the oxytocin, and so we 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 have been enforcing much to my husband's you know resistance is that if Amber comes and asks for a hug, he has to stand there and hold her for ten seconds. It's brilliant, love it. Watching the faces, like, oh, this is uncomfortable, and then easing into it, and then it being a thing that you enjoy, you know. But it's yeah, it's all linked, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's like anything. It's stuff that you probably know, and I think the shift or the context of covid and that isolation you know it's huge it's it's a huge um marker for ill health the the robert waldinger talks about the isolation being one of the contributors to ill health in you know it's the other end of the study about people who've they've studied over that period of 80 odd years that those who, you know, it's the, it's the flip side of those who haven't got strong relationships are less likely to, um, to be healthy in their later life. And um, I think the COVID's a sort of short term um, marker of, of something very similar. And, you know, I think you're right. Um, I'm also struck with um, not, underestimating the effort required for maintaining and tending tending to to relationships and I'm, I'm struck by an exercise we ran with a group this week where we had people consider relationships that they um, would identify that might they might want to improve with people either at work or outside of work. And we asked them a question which came from the uh, FIRO um, theory workshop that I run, the human elements, and it's the exercise that we run, Max. I'm not sure if we've ever we've ever done it. We might have done. Michael's Michael's aware of it. So we asked people to finish the question 
or finish the statement with three or four people in mind, things would be even better between us if only you would. And then you do your list. So I might say things would be better between us if only you would, you know, talk to me more or or, or tell me what you're really feeling or things would be better between us if even better between us if only you would give me a bit more space. And then the provocative turn in the exercise is when we have people change the nature of the framing statement from things would be better between us if only you would to if only I would and go through your list and then you say well how many of those statements still apply so if you want to shift the nature of a relationship are you prepared to put the work in because how much of it might be if you need more transparency or openness from somebody else maybe it's you need to go first or if you want um, somebody to give you more space maybe you need to give them more space mm -hmm. so it was a I think a typically challenging exercise for people, which we got a very mixed response to, um, saying, well, there's, you know, sometimes you get people saying, well, there's nothing, you know, it's about them, it's not about me. And I, I gently challenge that. So I think the relational aspect of what's in it for people to improve relationships that they have and let things go and um, is more about not just the relationship, it's about, the, in a selfish sense, it's what does that give you and potentially others from a health perspective? Absolutely. And I guess I guess the, the thing that does come with age is that sense of who's still with me. So who's still with me on the journey and why are they still with me? And what is it that is in our relationship that is nurturing, fulfilling, whatever? Um, and 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 I see the relationship as the thing, um, you know. We know this from the work we've done, uh, Ben, with Peter Hawkins around team coaching, and seeing that the relationship is the thing that sits between, almost as an abstract existence in and of itself. So it, mm. the relationship needs nurturing. It's not that you need to be different or that I need to be different. It's that our relationship needs to be different. And what is each of our contribution to that? And it doesn't have to be 50-50 at different moments in time. Um, it, it can be, you know, more, more one-sided than the other, just as long as we're, we're both attending or tending to it. But you do think about who are the people that I've had in my life and how much time am I investing in them or how much time are they investing in me? But I think I, I tend to... Um, trust relationships that I have with people now where I could pick the phone up to them and whether I've spoken to them yesterday last month or last year that there would be no judgment in that lack of contact that there would just be joy in the contact yeah. which I think sometimes when you're younger I use that term in speech marks because I think this is probably significantly younger you could be oh you're been in touch all right mm. I find your contribution there Matt, profound. The the point you make about who's who's still with me on this journey, and that's in my head at least looped me back to this idea of inhabiting ourselves. And if we position the relationship in between us, you know that inhabit also becomes cohabit, doesn't it? We're inhabiting and cohabiting in this field together, in this space together, and. I know if I were to answer the question, 
that Ben just raised there, which was mm. around things would be better between us if only I would, like the second part of it. I think for me, when I'm really honest with myself, I think I could I could name any number of people and I could probably say that I needed to tend to those relationships more frequently than I do. And that, that tending bit, I think there's a thread of truth that runs through a lot of my relationships, knowing that I am one of those types of people that tends to sort of drift off under this. Maybe it's a little bit of pretense that, you know, I'm, I'm independent and I can, I can do this on my own and da, 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 which um, perhaps is on some days it's how it, it's how it feels. I know it's what I learned when I was younger and, and today I wrestle with that being my truth or just a sort of a learning or a, mm-hmm. a thing that I developed as a defense. And it's still like something that I wrestle with, but I know that how it would come up in my response to Ben's challenge would be really needing to tend to relationships more and, and that being beneficial for me more than anyone else. And then there's the other end of that where I would say my defence years ago would be to overdo it in terms of your, if you're, Michael, your your tendency was maybe to be independent and to withdraw. Mine was probably to be um, over-inclusive because I was looking for validation or approval or to, um, you know, I was laughing with a, finally tracked down the guy who walks past my office at the front of my house who's got the dog that I'm planning to get the breed of dog and I went to have a chat with him and he, I said tell me about the breed he said oh well they you know, they're quite emotionally needy and I went oh well we'll get we'll get on we'll get on fine then. <laughs> and he, he kind of looked at me quite strangely and I thought well maybe live in our world does he but and I think to your point Michael the it's finding that balance, isn't it, between the way you tend relationships because it's a two-way street and, as you say, it's a cohabit thing. And I think, you know, my tendency in the past might have been to overbehave, to attempt to build a relationship with everybody. And then you get a bit more, I think as you get older, you probably get a bit more selective and you go for the depth of those relationships and the consistency and no pretense and you just go for what suits you and there's something there about we we talk about it when we're doing the the noggin thing about the do you you know do you love someone or do you love how they make you feel in their presence yeah that's a really good opportunity for michael to practice something (laughs) i think maybe max this raises this raises an issue from our last podcast where i slightly messed up the sentiment that you've just shared there by making it all about me (laughs) so what's the quote michael you know what i don't even want to try (laughs) i'm not not prepared to humiliate myself in this moment thank you this along the lines of me pointing out that i was sharing a fantastic model about the habits of seven highly effective people (laughs) (laughs) rather than the habits of Seven habits of highly effective people. It's that sort of thing, getting it the right way around. But the point being, that thing about I I want people in my life, and I think when you come to accept for yourself that the reason you've got people in your life 
or relationships in your life is because of how they make you feel, then you've got, I think, you've got permission, you've both got permission for to, to be in touch or not be in touch. Mm. And, and I think that's fine. And if I want to speak to you every day for a week and then not speak to you for a year, that's in my head mm. fine. For some people, it isn't fine. For some people, they have a need to have more, you know, almost like a clocking in, clocking out sort of tally sheet. And maybe it's because you've tended those relationships well in the past. No, I don't think so. It's just how I am. <laughs> I think I just, I think I, my sense of, I know I have this conversation with my husband about it's okay. You know, when you say, oh, you feel guilty for, oh, I haven't been in touch with that person. I haven't done this. And I always go, and they haven't been in touch back. There's two sides to a relationship. So therefore, to own all of the responsibility for it. I mean, if you are the one that always rejects the requests, then okay, maybe there is a problem. But Mm. you see what I mean? It's okay. In my head, it's okay. I suppose for me, it's then, I suppose, as we begin to think about maybe drawing the time we have together for to a close for, for this week is I don't know maybe maybe it's thinking about this concept of you know whether you do connect with people or reconnect with people it's the the tending of that relationship that has a positive effect on on you and them and there's a health benefit to it as you say Max from the opposite of the covid situation as we get the opportunity to i suppose reset some of our relationships and maybe we have done you know with conversations albeit over zoom that we've reconnected with some and maybe there's still more to do but the concept of a long life being established on the basis of satisfying a sat you know really um good strong quality relationships with people then as a health benefit worthy of worthy of being paid attention to so where do we leave you max from your first experience with us on on our podcast on a hot friday afternoon (laughs) with your blue bottle philosophical um it's just nice to con it is nice to contemplate and to leave this conversation with and thank you for the word michael the constellation of you know who are the important people in my life so where you've left me with is this sort of lovely set of people that are floating around in my head and just you know seeing the little zigzags going to and fro between us michael well i have been busy in my head and this and i'm also aware that you're trying to mark the end of the podcast and i'm about to raise something new which we may not include (laughs) in what we edit but when when a relationship is like balanced and platonic and there's a shared sense of what we reciprocate then then i get i get the i get what we're talking about i guess the the challenge i have when i think about it is what if what if a relationship isn't balanced or even or equal or platonic or however you might you might describe it so for instance say i have a need to be idealized like um you know in relationships i i want to think that i'm the hero or a superman that perhaps might mean that um, I'm drawn to people who are happy to see me in that way. And therefore that puts them in a slightly unequal position where they might need, or, you mm. know, if I was, if I did have the Superman complex, they might need rescuing or saving. And therefore then the, the relationship that's created is somewhat different from, 
from this constellation that you describe of, of these lovely tended relationships where stuff is shared and equal. I, I guess I'm just throwing in this uh, sort of the, the double-edged element to, to what we're talking about because, you know, relationships are complex too. And we do have our sort of um, histories and ways of navigating people. And there, and sometimes there are other, there's other stuff going on. So it equally, it's a tricky one too. And I guess that's what I'm left with from today, chatting to you both. That's interesting. Well, I liked what you were saying there. And it was making me think it, there's levels of self-awareness, isn't there, in your relationships, which is, do you know that you're behaving badly? And the first level is you don't. So therefore, those relationships are not equal, are they? And then there's the bit where you start to know that you're behaving badly. So then you start to look at those relationships and what you're doing and start to open it up. Mm. And then there's that level of what you described, Ben, which is that, you know, in realising that you might have been needy, you're also acknowledging with the dog that you might still want to be a bit needy because it's <laughs> it's okay. Um, and you kind of own it. Yeah. And I don't know that, that. I'm sure there's a sophisticated maturity model of some sort somewhere that's just described what I've just said in very later. Mm. Well, it's when you, you, you move from a self authoring mind to a self transforming mind as you go through adult development that you get to a stage where you're aware enough of yourself to stop projecting your own shit on other people. That's a fairly good place to get to. And then you're also aware enough of what what might trigger you to over or under behave in certain situations and you are either mindful of it which prevents that or gives you more choice or that you're just open about it and to Michael's point from earlier there's no pretense you just um, put that out there as part of what people love you for so you have to own your own shit stop protecting it but also that that constellation in my head when you were describing that scenario, Michael was kind of like looking like a wonky constellation, and and the the connectivity was still there, but it just had different colours and you know a, a, a different. I'm rubbing my fingers together now, like a a different feel, but it's still there, isn't it? Because we see it in the workplace when people bring what goes on outside work into work, or what goes in on in work, they take it out, you know, replay it. And I think from, you know, the myriad of books or theories that, you know, we all come across as part of the world work we do as coaches, facilitators and therapists is there are lots of ways of explaining or beginning to talk about what a happy life might be made up of or a happy existence. And I'm taken back to the outcomes or intentions from FIRO theory of people's desire to feel alive, self-determined and self-aware. So aliveness, self-determination and self-awareness. And you know, it's very difficult to achieve if you're being defensive. Yeah, and and very difficult to achieve when, given whatever the constellation you're sat in the centre of, when you make an adjustment, sometimes those adjustments are really hard to make stick, aren't they? Because it's in a field where not everyone necessarily will want you to change. <laughs> and there lies another problem. Because they need you to stay that way in order that they don't. Yeah. Then we're back to that stagnation yeah. generate, generate the thing at the beginning. Yeah. And the, and the 
quote, Michael, which I'll, I'll help you with, that I like you because I like me when I'm with you. And if you if something changes about you, I might not like myself when I'm with you. Exactly. So if the constellation changes, then, yeah, that shouldn't necessarily present, prevent you from honouring who you want to be, whatever stage of life, of life you're at. I agree. And, and I think where we've got to is the shadow and light of people, haven't we? You know, in one part of this conversation, we were very much in the light talking about all of the sort of good of goodness. And then uh, towards the end, we've, we've closed off with a bit of shadow, which for me is really important because we carry both of these mm-hmm. sides around with us. And this figure of eight that Max talked about at the start, this figure of eight is very sort of shadow and light, isn't it? And we talked about the polarities of generativity and stagnation. We are shifting in and out of these different um, constructive and sometimes destructive phases. And that movement's really important, the vitality, that aliveness to keep it all going is crucial, isn't it? Anyway, sorry for taking us off on a further tangent, just as Ben was about to say goodbye. No, it's fine. It's that thing, that sense that if you if you don't if you don't if you don't screw something up, you don't know what good looks like. Um, <laughs> that sort of, that, is that was that a, a nod to how I may have screwed this podcast, <laughs> or were you just speaking well, generally? <laughs> it was a, a there's loads of stuff going through my head at the moment around that sort of when do we learn the most as well, and yeah. when we learn the most is and we talk about you know again when we get people in a the room they say right we want you to have a go and actually by the way do it really badly have a go at it really really try to make a mess of it because actually by doing it badly you learn more than by doing it right because if you do it right then you don't attend to it do you so there's that sort of sense of it's okay to be, to do something in the dark well obviously on the dark side you don't want to go too dark but what what i mean is it's it you can't be happy without knowing what it feels like to be unhappy mm. And maybe with this podcast in mind, the gesture here is to leave this really untidy. And I know how Ben likes to close things off quite neatly. And and, and we may be slightly pushing him into that discomfort of leaving it a little bit untied. Or would that be all right, Ben? Or do we need to um, pull this together? Well, I I would say good luck. (laughs) 